Amen. Amen. Can we uh, thank Alec and Gracie for leading us in such a special time of worship this morning? I'll tell you, it is, it's really nice just to unplug sometimes and sing like that and worship like that. Just a guitar, a couple voices, and all of you singing. I tell you, if, if that didn't move you, uh, right from here, from church today, just go check in over at Noach because there might be something wrong with you. So, um, my name's Pastor Chris. Usually I'm up here telling you about uh, the Connect card and all of those things. I'm campus pastor here, but this morning I get the immense privilege to be able to bring you God's Word this morning. And did you know, um, the three most attended services, church services, in the year are Christmas, Easter, and Mother's Day. And do you know why that is? Because on that one day, your mama gets what mama wants, right? And we're going to get our kids in church this time. I think there's a lot to be learned from that, men, that uh, on this day, mama gets what mama wants. And I think uh, what a great privilege it is to see all of you here this morning and uh, worshiping the Lord together. And uh, I do want to extend a warm, happy Mother's Day to all of you. And the reality is we may not all be mothers, but we have all had mothers in our lives, whether our actual mothers or people who have mothered us in our lives and in the room um, uh, obviously, someone very special to me is in this room this morning, in this service, my mom, who I told her that I was going to embarrass her this morning because she always says, she's like, Chris, I, I don't need things. I just want words. I just want words for Mother's Day. And so, mom, in front of everyone here, I love you. And I am so grateful for uh, the example that you've been in my life and putting Christ first and being just such an amazing example of someone who presses through the hardest things in life, uh, dealing with all of us kids <laughs> throughout uh, our lives and uh, just putting Jesus in the forefront, always knowing that uh, we are loved by God and loved by you and dad. Thank you for being an amazing mom in my life. Yeah. Amen. She deserves it. And and also, I do want to mention um, my wife as well, who has to deal with me and my three kids. And um, if you know anything about my three kids or me, you know that she has a quiverful and she knocks it out of the park. And, and uh, often is the case, like this morning, she's over at the other campus leading worship and I'm over here doing ministry. And so many times on the weekends, we aren't together in that way. But if you see my wife throughout the week, just say, I'm so sorry. And, uh, and uh, love on her for me. She's been such a gracious gift of God to me and just the, the best mom in the world to our kids. And so I'm just very grateful this morning for all of the mothers in the room. And um, I've had many people in my, in my life who have mothered me as well, who all know that. And my mother-in-law, who is just a prayer warrior of prayer warriors, and she's not here today. She lives in Montana. So happy Mother's Day to you, Lori. Both of my moms named Lori. I love it. It's very easy to remember. So turn with me, if you would, to the book of Jude. This morning, we're going to go through an entire book of the Bible. And if you're uh, like me, maybe you're like, oh my goodness, Jude, where is that? What, I, when was the last time you heard a message on the book of Jude? When was the last time you read the book of Jude? And if you don't know where the book of Jude is, it's the second to last book of the Bible. So start at Revelation and work back one book, and there you will find Jude. And we are taking a break this week from uh, the Tearing Down Stronghold series that we have been going through. How many of you have been blessed by that series? Yeah. 
It's very, uh, it's an impactful series, and often, uh, I was at the service last night when Pastor Cal was talking about taking a break from that just for one week, because sometimes when you're swimming a marathon, you just need to you know, get up above the water and breathe, because those messages have been pretty weighty and pretty convicting, and so today, we are going to take a break from that and preach through the entire book of Jude, and... Um, and so as you turn there, the, and as you take a couple minutes to find the book of Jude, I wanted to mention to you this last Friday I had the privilege of doing something actually pretty hard for me. Um, I got the privilege of preaching the gospel at a funeral of a dear friend of mine. Many of you remember Rick Durf. He used to sit right here. Hi, Marty. And uh, used to sit right here in like the second row before we had to do the little break of the rows here. And... Um, and if you wouldn't recognize him by sight, if you don't recognize him by what he looks like, you would definitely recognize him for his voice. Because often, whether it was after a worship song or during the message or during something one of the worship leaders would, sing, would be saying, he would, he would wait till the end at the perfect moment and say, amen. Right? Do you guys remember that? Remember amen? Well, um, COVID took my brother Rick this last December. And before we get into the book of Jude, I wanted to share with you his legacy and the way I will always remember Rick. See, Rick was not ashamed of the gospel by any stretch. He was so contagious for it. In fact, throughout the last few years, Rick was going through some health issues with his, with his hip and doing different hip replacements. And he would, uh, he would often say God uh, used that whole experience to bring him to his knees literally. Um, and a couple of years prior, even to that, in 2017, he, he mentioned to me, and he actually in the Got at Work video that we shared a year ago, about how he's laying on the operating room table, facing another infection that he was convinced might be taking him in that moment. And that was a moment when Rick was convicted of many things, and specifically of keeping the main thing the main thing. Rick had been a believer for years, but he, see, he told me he had a, a lot of things in his life that he was prioritizing over what is the main thing in his relationship with Jesus Christ and sharing Jesus with people. See, when I first met Rick, he didn't sit here in the second row. He sat all the way in the back corner, and he was one of the people who made an effort, actually a couple times, I believe, to come up to me when I was the worship pastor at that time to say and to be concerned with and to critique how he was not a fan of our worship music. And as a worship pastor, I, you know, I couldn't help but kind of feel offended in that moment. But, uh, you know, I, I, we get that a lot as worship guys, so I just kind of brushed it off. But what was interesting is he came up to me later and said, when he was on the operating room table and God convicted him of keeping the main thing the main thing, one thing specifically that God mentioned to him or like convicted him of was how he would critique the worship music at the church he was going to. And ever since that day when God brought him through that infection, he sat right there in the second row and he would have his hands up high. I mean, he was a Goliath of a man, like nine feet high, hands straight up in the air, worshiping his face off. It didn't matter what song it was. It didn't matter if he knew it or not. It just, if the song said anything about Jesus and worshiping Jesus, he was all in. I tell you about Rick this morning, not only to honor a man who has impacted me greatly in a mighty way throughout the years, but to exemplify the calling we have as believers that Jude is going to challenge us with 
this morning. So if you're in the book of Jude, we're going to start right from the top. And it starts with an introduction. It says, uh, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So what Jude reveals to us in this greeting is the overarching theme, the thesis, if you will, to his letter to the church. Did you see it there? We are called to contend for the faith, contend for the faith. And by means of definition, contending is a word that means to defend the faith, give a defense for the faith. What faith? The faith that was given once and for all to the saints. He's talking about the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is a clue that this letter would have been coming kind of at the tail end of the early, that what we know is the earliest of the early church in that first amount of time when Jesus ascended and then you have the apostles writing the letters. Jude obviously comes toward the end of that because it's like he's saying, I wanted to write to you in a similar fashion as the other apostles that wrote to you these letters uh, about the beauty of the theology of God's grace and his love and his mercy and dive deep into the depths of what the gospel is. But he's said, instead, I feel necessary uh, to write to you to compel you to contend for the faith. And why does he feel necessary to do that? Because of what it says in verse 4. See, the tenets of the Christian faith and the uh, and what the Christian faith was and was already established and affirmed by that point by the apostles that had written before him. And so Jude's letter is in this crux of early church history where already there was a problem and he needed to address it. And we know what that problem was in verse 4. Pick up there. It says, For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. There's a perversion of grace. The perversion of the grace of God happening in the early church by those who crept in unnoticed. That's terrifying. These are false teachers who are perverting the gospel into sensuality and the denial of Jesus as Lord. In other words, these are the false teachers who would claim all of the benefits of Christianity but not a life marked by submission to our Lord and for his glory. People who would teach that your faith is between you and Jesus and how you live your life doesn't actually matter. People who crept in unnoticed, like wolves in sheep clothing, who said, you know what, if we are saved by grace and by the fact that God forgives us and God has to forgive us, then let's party and let's just, we, we, all of us got this get out of hell free card, so let's just utilize that. Let's take that for granted. Let's live how we want because God has to forgive us, right? And so we can just, we can have this amazing uh, life of just anything we want. doesn't matter what it is because God has to forgive us. It's a perversion of grace. It's a perversion of grace. And God is not pleased by that faulty logic. In fact, just, just years earlier, the Apostle Paul would pen the letter to the Romans specifically addressing that same question in chapter 6 when it says, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And he answers it. He says, by no means. Who have we who have died to sin still live in it? And yet Jude is addressing a cancer in the church of that time being sensuality and the perversion of grace, denying Jesus as Lord. 
denying Jesus as Lord, that we would submit our lives to an authority of Jesus Christ and his word. Does this sound vaguely familiar to anything we're going through right now in our current time period? How about the perversion of grace? You know, the statistics of the American church and its view on hell serves as a pretty grave evidence that the perversion of grace is upon us in the church. Less and less Americans believe in hell. Did you know that? Less and less Americans in the church believe in hell. It's pretty grave. In fact, an article actually five years ago this week by uh, National Geographic quotes an author, Preston Sprinkle, who I've never heard of, but he wrote a book called Erasing Hell. And he said, my prediction is that even within conservative evangelical circles, the annihilation view of hell will be the dominant view in 10 to 15 years. He says, I base that on how many well-known pastors secretly hold that view that he knows. And I think that we are at a time and place when there is a growing suspicion of adopting tradition for the sake of tradition. Do you see what he's saying? Did you hear what he was actually saying? He's saying hell is outdated. Sin isn't as bad as it used to be. We've learned more about God to realize that he's not as serious about sin as he used to be in generations ago in the Bible. It's a perversion of grace. It's a perversion of grace. What about the denial of Jesus as Lord? We're seeing that all over the place right now, even in the church. It's a cancer in and among the church that runs under the radar that is seen very clearly when you call people out on something that is sin in their lives. Have you had that experience before? You had a concern with someone uh, in your life that is engaging in some form of sin and you're concerned about them? You know, there's two types of people in the world. There's people who are called out on sin and who respond in uh, conviction and repentance. And then there are people who are called out on sin who respond with contentiousness and offense. You know, the people I'm talking about, everything is fine until you bring something up in their life that you're concerned about or sinful and wrong. It's the apparent recognition. Listen, Jesus is my savior. He died for me, yes, okay? But don't tell me about my life. Don't tell me about things. And that's between me and the Lord. My, my relationship with Jesus is, my faith in Jesus is between me and him. It has nothing to do with you. Stay out of it. I can do it. Jesus is okay with how I live my life. Have you read the Bible? <laughs> I don't think Jesus is okay with you sleeping around with people. I don't think Jesus is okay with the pornography you, think, you seem to think isn't hurting anybody. I don't think Jesus is okay with your spending habits. I don't think Jesus is okay with the way that you treat your spouse. I don't think Jesus is okay with the way you lied to your boss this week or whatever it is, right? Why is it that we are so often quick to defend ourselves more than the faith that was delivered to us once and for all that is meant to change us more into his likeness? That's the point of Jude. Contending for the faith. This world is not about you or me. The second we think that our lives are about you or me, we lose. It is about the glory of the Lord because of the gospel. God is not mocked, and his grace was not cheap. Contend, defend, and keep the main thing, the main thing. Jesus is Savior. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is King. And there is no other way that leads to life. And his word, the Bible, is truth absolute. Gosh, I miss Rick. I heard it back in the corner. If you're like me, you hear something like that and you're like, yes, come on, let's do this. 
Maybe you're out there, you're like, listen, Chris, I got my phone ready, I've got Facebook on, I've got Instagram Live going right now, I've got my Twitter open, I've got TikTok, whatever that is, I've got doing, I'm doing that, and I'm ready to fire some Defending the Faith missiles right now into the world and tell them that they're lost and they're broken and they're stupid and they need Jesus. Don't do that, okay? We need to talk about what it means first to contend for the faith. We need to talk about and use the letter of Jude as a good rubric for what it means to contend for the faith today rightly. And so that's the big question this morning. How do I contend for the faith today? How do I contend for the faith rightly? And here's the first thing. We need to look inward before outward. Look inward before outward. That's the whole point of the first four verses that we read. This is a hard one because what is most natural for our sinful human wiring is to look at others' faults and sins before our own. I could see it in your eyes. I could see it. I could even feel it in my heart when I was talking about the perversion of grace and the denial of Jesus as Lord and talking about the proverbial worldly people that come into the church. It's like, yeah, those screwed up people. I wish they would only listen a little bit harder right now. Right? When the reality is Jude isn't writing to them. He's re- remember, he's writing to the called, the kept, and the love. He's writing to you, and turn to your neighbor saying, he's talking to you. He's talking to me. Interesting that in that first verse, he uses the words, three different descriptors, adjectives for believers in Jesus Christ. We are called, we are loved, and we are kept. And those are passive words in there. There's nothing that we can do in our lives to be called, loved, and kept. That's all what the Lord does to us through Jesus Christ. What an amazing identity that we have in Jesus. And contending for the faith starts there, having the security of understanding and knowing and remembering where our security lies, being called, loved, and kept by God in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And if we want any semblance of contending for the faith outwardly, we need to contend for it inwardly. It has to start here before it goes out. Are we guilty of making the gospel a commodity in our lives that we spend on what we want to do instead of the fuel that drives our worship? We have to look into our hearts. It's easy to cast stones outwardly, but are we willing to lay down our comfort, becoming vulnerable before the Lord on a daily basis and ask him how, uh, how he can reveal to us this, the, the areas in our lives that we have become exactly what Jude warns about? appealing to him desperately for help in repentance? Are we willing to lay down our wills for the sake of not only accepting Jesus as Savior, but bowing the knee to him as Lord and submit to his authority and submit to what his word says? Listen, family, it's not a game. This isn't a game. We have a very real enemy who would love to see the work of the church for the cause of Christ come to a screeching halt if he could. If our focus is to run to repentance and to refocus our hearts and our minds and our lives to God's word and keeping the gospel close to our hearts. This is a first great step in the direction of contending for the faith. You know, the, the biggest threat to the church, you know what the biggest threat to the church is? It doesn't come from outside the church. It comes from inside the church. 
I think many of us look at what's happening in Washington or what's happening in our communities or what's, you know, the legislation that's about to be passed or not passed or who's uh, elected in whatever uh, gov- you know, local or, uh, or federal government. Uh, we look at what's happening in the public school system right now and we look at all of those things which do impact Christians greatly. But do you know the biggest threat to the church is not found in those things even though they impact the church. The biggest threat is found inside the church and it's false teaching false teaching, people being led astray by teachers, wolves in sheep's clothing, trying to pervert the grace of God and make the gospel into something that's palatable when we know that sin is a grave disturbance in our relationship with God and needs to be dealt with through Jesus Christ and only through Jesus Christ. Thomas Watson, a Puritan preacher, I think we have a wonderful looking man, says, till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. Will we allow God's word to sink deep and challenge us? Will we be quick to let God's word draw us into repentance and live uh, out the values of the kingdom of God? We need to contend for the faith here before we contend for the faith there. We need to start in our hearts. Here's the second thing. We need to remember that there's nothing new under the sun. There's nothing new under sun. I want to quickly blast through the next eight verses of Jude as he walks us through a history lesson of how the problems we face right now are just cyclical throughout the generations. Starting in verse 5, it says, Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these uh, people blaspheme all uh, all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are the hidden reefs at your love feast as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever." Um, scale of 1 to 10, how does Jude like the people that he's describing? <laughs> Not very much. And at first glance, you may, you may be like, what is he talking about? And there are, rightly so, some interesting things in this passage that, we can, that can get confusing very quickly, but I don't want you to miss the common theme of the perversion uh, and the straying away from the statutes of God that he's outlining here that result in demise and destruction. In verse 5, it says, those who uh, did not believe. In verse 6, those angels who did not stay within their own position of authority. In fact, this is one of the few places in Scripture, along with uh, a pretty detailed passage in Ezekiel, that talk about Satan's fall and bringing angels with him, and those angels became demons. There's a lot to be said about that, but uh, let's go on here. Verse 7, it says, those who indulged in sexual morality, pursuing unnatural desire. Verse 8, those who rely on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme. Blaspheme is just a fancy word for trying to take the place of God or to claim 
divine authority. And verse 9, those who blaspheme. Verse 11, those who like Cain, Balaam, and Korah abandon themselves for the sake of gain. And verse 12, fearless, disobedience, and shepherds feeding themselves. Do any of these things sound familiar? Unbelief, defiance of authority, sexual immorality, unnatural sexual deviancy, blasphemous disobedience against God. It's interesting. How often do we think, man, I really hope Jesus comes soon because I just don't know how it could get any worse. Our world is so bad right now. It's so hard to be a Christian in this culture right now when in actuality we're not facing anything new. The enemy likes to try to disguise all of the things that we're facing right now. And he tries to uh, lead us to discouragement and even despair by taking the same things that he's been tempting people with for generations and just repackaging them into different skins. And we often will just freak out about it when nothing is new under the sun. And in every case, What Jude is saying is, listen, we have a faithful creator God in Jesus Christ who is going to step in as a righteous judge and clean house. We only need to wait. In fact, that's our third point. How do we contend for the faith today? We need to let Jesus be the righteous judge. Let Jesus be the righteous judge. Let's pick up in verse 14. It says, It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesying, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and, and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. A lot of ungodliness happening. And all of the harsh things that the ungodly sinners have spoken against them. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. One thing is for certain in this passage, the one who judges and the one who is responsible for executing judgment is who? Is it you? Is it me? Are we supposed to be the judge? No, it's Jesus. I think often we feel the need to judge the world, to condemn the world of its sin and shameful ungodliness, when in actuality we're called to be salt and light in the midst of the darkness. Contending for the faith, then, is allowing Jesus to do his job in executing justice and judgment. And in turn, we're called to do our job in being obedient to the mission that he has set us on, that he's called us to, and to go out and make disciples. Maybe you were wronged this week. Maybe you were hurt this week. Maybe you were mistreated and there was such a clear instance of injustice done to you. And maybe uh, even the injustice we see all around us at every corner as our culture looks to be falling by the wayside. But if you want peace in the midst of this, rest in knowing that Jesus is coming again. Rest that our faithful, righteous judge And Jesus Christ is coming again. And when that day arrives, we will see the justice of the Lord come to full fruition in the judgment of all of the evil that we see around us. It's not our job. It's his job. And we can trust him and we can trust his timing. And we are called to live on mission. And so we contend for the faith, letting Jesus be the righteous judge in his timing. Here's a fourth thing. We need to hang in there. How do we contend for the faith right now, today? Hang in there persevere. Let's pick up in verse 17. But you must remember, beloved, 
the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, and this is actually a quote, I believe, of Peter, and you see it in many of the apostles. In the last times, there, are, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in, in uh, your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. I love what Jude does here. He goes through 11 verses just putting together such a grim outlook of the fate of the ungodly and the state of our world that we as a church are placed into. And he pauses to say, but, but you're different. Remember, you are loved and you are called and you are kept by the God of the universe, by Jesus Christ. You don't need to be surprised or worried or freak out about anything going on around us. Don't you remember the predictions of the apostles? Hang in there. You're going to be okay. It's going to be okay. As a believer in Jesus Christ, it's going to be okay. It may get way worse, but it's going to be okay. And you know what? He gives us three ways in this passage of how we can persevere in the midst of this, how we can stay okay in the midst of this, how we can rest and have peace in the midst of everything happening around us. Here's the first thing. Build yourself up through prayer. Build yourself up through prayer. You know, in the last couple of years, one of the things I've learned, especially with dealing uh, with hard circumstances or even difficult people, is the power of prayer. Not even necessarily because prayer is answered in the way that I want it to be answered. Often it's answered in, uh, in differently than I would hope for, but it's more that prayer itself has built me up. And the more I've gone to the Lord in prayer and seeking him in his word and seeking those vital times of communication with God, I'm learning more and more that the outcome of what I'm praying for isn't as important as the act of praying and seeking the Lord and showing him that I am desperate for him in this moment and in that circumstance. D.L. Moody said this about prayer. He said, I'd rather be able to pray than be a great preacher. Jesus Christ never taught his disciples how to preach, but only how to pray. And I love the truth in Philippians 4, 6, and 7. And I've seen this happen over and over in my own life, going through things, but as well as walking uh, through the miry clay with people. It says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Perseverance and prayer have to go hand in hand because the best way to persevere is being guarded by the peace that surpasses understanding. Have you experienced that when you pray? Have you ever faced a situation in your life where you were just like, God, I don't, I don't, I don't understand this. I don't know how I'm going to get through this. I don't know what I'm going to do right now, God, but I know that you do. I know, God, that you're in control. And in that moment, have you experienced just kind of this, just a peace. This peace that he was like, I don't understand, I don't get it. 
but like a peace that surpasses it. I've experienced it over the phone with people as they're losing their loved one or as they're going through a very hard relational circumstance where I would just, we would pray together over the phone. And, and some of these people I don't really even know very well, but know that there's this hard thing going on in their lives. It's one of the privileges as a pastor to be able to call in uh, on people who are going through a crisis and say, can we just pause a moment and let's bring this before the Lord. And after that, how many times have I heard, like, wow, like nothing has changed, but I feel a peace. Because that's a promise that God gives us. And it's peace is a promise that he keeps. Prayer builds us up because prayer is running to the creator of the universe and resting in the fact that he is in control even when we are not. And because it's Mother's Day, can I just brag on our moms for a second? Aren't moms just the best prayer warriors? Both of my moms, both my, my mom and my mother-in-law, are, they have their black belt in prayer. And if you ever ask my mom to pray for you, you can rest assured that it's happening because you would have made the list. Any of you moms have a list? My mom has a list, and it's not a short list. And if your name gets on the list, like the, the, I, I think if the phrase, the squeaky wheel gets the grease, you're going to want to be on my mom's list. Because my mom has this list that, and I've seen this happen her and my dad go through this list every single day. Every name on that list they mention before the Lord, and they pray over those people on that list faithfully. And my mother-in-law, it's funny, my, my wife and I kind of joke about this because my mother-in-law, whatever my mother-in-law seems to pray for happens. You know what I mean? It's not, and I, know, I know prayer isn't magic, but for some reason, uh, like I've, I've had it often where I would come home and something's going on at work or something's happening in the life of someone in our church and my mother-in-law would, wouldn't even know who they are, but I would be like, Lenny, you need to call your mom and have her pray for this. <laughs> Reminds me of James 5.16 that says, the prayers of the righteous availeth much. That's the King James Version, I guess. That's the one, that's the one I remember. Prayer builds faith. It builds trust and builds endurance. Here's a second thing of how to hang in there. Remember your identity and your hope. Verse 21 says, keep yourselves in the love of God. And here's a question. How do you keep yourself in the love of God? Is this saying that I can fall out of God, God's love? Is this, is, is this saying that if I'm not careful, God could stop loving me and I'm gone forever? No. You know, you know one of my favorite things as a parent um, if you're a parent, have you been in, and you, especially when you have young kids, Gabe is classic for doing this, and you're in kind of a, a, an unknown situation or you're meeting new people or whatnot, and then and all of a sudden your kids like kind of like mold into your side, you know, like they push so close into you. And um, I, it's like, uh, you know, the, what, I, this happens so many times where I'll be with Gabe and we'll meet someone new and all of a sudden Gabe's like, I don't know about this. I don't know who this person is. I'm not comfortable with this, so I'm going to hide in the folds of fat in my dad's leg right now. You know what I mean? Have you seen that? Why do kids do that? I love that they do that, but do you know why they do that? Because they know the closer they are, the safer they feel. That's what Jude is talking about here. Keeping in the love of God is stay close to God. Stay close to the love of God because you're safe there. And what Jude is warning us is it's not that we can fall out of God's love. We're, remember, we are kept and we are called and we are loved by God. But we can and often forget about it, don't we? 
We can move that truth to the back of our minds. We can, we can allow other things going on in our lives to come up to the forefront and, and, and live right here every hour, every second of the day that causes us to worry, that causes us to uh, be discouraged, causes us to start being depressed and maybe even go into despair. And God's love actually feels more like a distant memory than, um, than anything else. And what he's saying is like, in spite of everything else, we need to prioritize keeping in the love of God, pursuing Jesus and his word on a daily basis, sometimes multiple times depending on what we're going through, remembering that we have a God who loves us, a God who cares for us, a God who is so faithful to us in every circumstance that we face. And when I think about the goodness and the loving kindness of God, the fact that out of love he created all things, out of love he created a way for the redemption through Jesus Christ, out of love, he sacrificed his son for our sake to forgive us from all of our sin and shame that clouds our lives. Out of love, he gave us his spirit, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead to transform us more and more into his likeness and sustain us through everything that we go through. When I remember that I am a child of the king because of Jesus Christ, that makes everything else I'm going through endurable. And do you know why? Because everything else in life can be taken away, but there is one thing that cannot be taken away from me as a believer. Nothing can separate us from the love of God through Jesus Christ. And that gives us hope. That gives us a hope like no other. It gives us a hope that helps us hang in there, helps us persevere through even the hardest of things. Here's a third thing to hang in there, to persevere. Lovingly remember your mission. In the process of persevering, Jude challenges us in verse 22 and 23, have mercy on those who doubt and save others by snatching them out of the fire. He's reminding us, stay on task. Stay on task. Don't get, don't lose sight of what's going on. Uh, uh, Don't lose sight of your task by what's going on around you. Don't freak out right now. You have a job. Snatch people out of the fire. Isn't that cool imagery? Snatch people out of the fire. What an amazing privilege it is to be able to be an an instrument in the Redeemer's hands, to be able to be used by God to help snatch people out of the hellfire that they are pursuing in their lives, to teach them and to preach to them and to talk to them and share with them the gospel of Jesus Christ and the fact that God loves them enough to die for them no matter what they have done. And what's interesting, God doesn't need us to do that. God is fully capable of doing all of this by himself, but he invites us into the process. He invites us to be on mission. Do you have anyone in your life that needs the Lord? We need to remember, God hasn't put us on this earth to condemn. We're we're here to love and throw life vests at people. Our mission is to make disciples, to share the gospel, to go to those who God has placed in our lives who need him and to exemplify the love of God to them and lead them as a light in the darkness. I love what D.L. Moody says. He says, we are told to let our light shine. And if it does, we don't need to tell anybody that it's shining. Lighthouses don't fire cannons to call attention to their shining. They just shine. Pray that God would put people in your shining path that need Jesus. Pray God that God would give you the courage to throw a life vest to someone that you love or someone that you know needs it. Pray that God would give you the confidence to be bold about your testimony of how Jesus transformed you from death to life. It starts there. If you want to persevere in this fallen world, remember your mission. 
And lastly, how do we contend for the faith? Here's a fifth thing. We, we need to worship from a place of security. Worship from a place of security. I love how Jude ends this letter. In fact, you probably may even recognize this passage of Scripture. You may not have remembered where the book of Jude was, but I bet you you've probably heard this. It says in verse 24, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. Do you know why we worship? We worship because if we believe in Jesus and what he did for us, our eternity is secure. Do you believe this? Is your hope found in the only truth that Jesus saves? And when he's got us, he doesn't let go. And he's able to keep us from stumbling. I love that. Remember in verse 1 it says that he's able, he, we are kept and loved and called by God. And we are kept by the keeper who is able to keep us from stumbling. I love that imagery. To be able to present us and to uh, present us blameless before God himself with great joy. It's an amazing and powerful truth that should well up in us. This overflowing sense of awe and wonder and gratitude. Do you know him? Do you have the security of knowing Jesus? Because that changes everything and it starts with our worship. He is worthy of glory. He is worthy of majesty. He is worthy of dominion, of control, and of authority. Not just now, but forever. Worship is recognizing not only who Jesus is, not only who he is, but who we are in light of who he is and what he's done for us. That God poured out his love for us. How could we do anything but praise his name? I think this is the thing I'm going to miss most about Rick. Rick worshiped from a place of security. And you know how I could tell that? Often when I would be leading worship here and Rick would be in the second row, I wasn't, I wasn't leading you all in worship. I was being led in worship by Rick. I wish, I wish everyone in this room would worship like Rick because in that moment, tears would be streaming down his cheeks. His hands would be up in the air. It didn't even matter what he was singing. It was like everything else faded away in his life. The seven hip replacements that he had, the infection that he may be facing, everything else that faded away, and even the people in the room that he may have been concerned about before, they all faded away because in that moment, he just said, God, you are worthy of praise. Jesus, you are worthy of all power and majesty and dominion and glory. Contend for the faith. And someday you will hear the same words that Rick just heard months ago. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter now into my rest. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for this opportunity, God, for us to be reminded again of how worthy you are of how important it is to remember the simplicity of the gospel. That we are dead in our sin and apart from what you have done for us, we would stay dead in sin. But through your grace and your mercy and your love, sending your son Jesus to die in our place, that we could have life eternal with you. God, what an amazing, amazing privilege 
to be called and to be loved and to be kept by you. God, I just pray that that would well in us awe and wonder and worship in our hearts to give you what you deserve, God. Glory and praise and honor and dominion and power and strength, God. You are worthy of it all. Pray all this in Jesus' name.